All right, now, I've got a secret. I'm going to let you in on the best bargain in all of travel. Come on close. It's called the Seishin Juhachikipu, and it is amazing. It only works for certain special magical times of the year. And here's the deal. For about 45 bucks, you get five days where you can just get on any train in Japan and ride for 24 hours. But of course, there's a catch. You can only take the slow trains. So, you know all those bullet trains you see in fancy advertisements and such? Well, you can't even look at those. You gotta get on the rickety and stop at each and every station train along the way, but that is all right. When you've got more time than money, being just out of school, me and my buddy Max, we woke up early, early in the morning and decided it was time to head south. It was glorious. We went to the Kyoto main train station and saw Japanese students waiting on the platform to pull the same trick we were. Where y'all going? North. For real? We're going south. Gambatene. Gambatezo. And we rode. I was a kind of happy you can only be on the road. Old, old, old ladies next to me talking about they make their own sake and would I like a taste. Heck yeah, I would like a taste, but y'all some bad old ladies. It's still early in the morning. And they laugh and start passing out rice balls with pieces of salmon inside. And I showed them posters of Michael Jackson and told them he was my cousin. And they were impressed. We kept riding. Nice people, crazy people, smelly people, kids, packed, trained, glorious day. And then it got dark out. We kept riding and riding and riding and riding until the train came to a stop in a broken down station house we knew not where. South. Wandered to a local watering hole, trying to figure things out. Sumasan! Couple beers to start. What is this place called anyway? And then this man with an Elvis hairdo, he comes up to us. Y'all ain't from here. Ooh, ooh, what gave us away? Well, you need somebody to show you around. And Max, he's wary, but I'm like trying to be open to the universe like Deepak Chopra said. And I'm like, all right, man, where we going? And he's following me, following me through some alleys and warrens. And then he opens a door and another door. And it's a private bar where there are lots of other nice men with Elvis haircuts. And they cheer when we walk in. And each and every one of them insists on buying us a drink. And then I look over at the older fellas and I notice one of them's missing a joint from the end of his pinky finger. And I see another guy. And another guy with exactly the same infirmity. And you see... Yakuza, Japanese gangsters, they sometimes cut the end of their fingers off as an act of contrition when they have done something wrong. And a lot of these fellas must have done something wrong. But I never had any problems with gangsters, especially when they're buying me free drinks in a gangster bar. And the man's like, hey, you want to sing karaoke? And I'm like, yeah, I want to sing karaoke, man. And I pride myself on never being the first one out, but it's getting late, 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 and the gangsters want to keep partying until the morning time, and I'm like, look, we got to go find a place to stay. And the big gangster, he's laughing. He says, no worries. He owns the hotel upstairs. Arigato. Max and I, we stumble up there, roll out the futons, and are about to crash. We hear this knock on the door. Max slides it open, and two ladies walk inside. They bow. We look at them, and they bow again. And I realize somebody downstairs thinks they're doing us a favor. And I don't know what to do. I try to explain to the ladies that they are lovely, really, really lovely, lovely, and thank you very much, but I'm from the Midwest, and in the Midwest, we really just don't know how to get down like that, but they don't seem to understand what I'm saying. They just bow and look and bow again, and I realize that they've got their own responsibilities because they're looking, and Max, Max, he just puts his hand on my hand. And then he looks at the ladies, and the ladies, they look at Max, and I'm looking at Max, and I'm like, what in the world? And the ladies, they make the one final bow and file out of the room. Hey, hey, that's real funny, fool, but this is a gangster hotel. When they find out, they're not going to take kindly to your nonsense. And Max is like, oh, yeah, 
Oh yeah. So we pack everything up. We sneak downstairs past the party still going on out into the dark. We're running lost like crazy people running till we cross a small park. And it's not really a park at all, but some benches and chairs. And we sit down in the chairs and I'm asleep like we're reclining on 900 count satin sheets and then shaking and shaking and it's still dark and it's Max and he's shaking me hard, shaking me, what, 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 what? He hands me a steaming cup of green tea. Dude, dude, what? We've still got four tickets left. Today on Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, Road Trip. My name is Glenn Washington, and this week, we're going to the side of the highway and sticking out our thumb because the journey is always way better than the getting there. Buckle up. Now, I am so proud, so proud indeed, to bring you the latest installment of an ongoing series we're gonna call Tales from Stephanie Fu's Father. Now for me personally, I just can't get enough of this guy. He's my favorite, it's always something. The man has done some of everything. And then just the other day, he wanted to take our producer, his daughter, Stephanie Fu, for a drive. I begged her, I said, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But you know, if you must, and she thought she must, go on ahead and bring along some recording equipment. This week's episode of Mr. Fu recalls the desolate landscape of Australia's outback where he used to work on an oil rig and fair warning to animal lovers and really fair warning to any decent, God-fearing human being with the soul that might be listening to the Snap Judgment program today. Things do not end well for any of the critters mentioned in this next piece. Australia, I was driving this rather sporty rental car. It was an Opel Commodore, I can still remember, whizzing around a corner until I whizzed around this corner. And there must have been 10,000 cockatoos right on the road. And I plow right in the middle of them and go, that's when I had my first Australian roadkill. And it wouldn't be my last, because I've killed so many damn things in Australia. I killed four kangaroos that I can remember. I killed an emu. That was one suicidal emu. I killed something called wombat. How fast were you going? I was going, I am going the wrong place. Where am I going? Oh, I, get off, get off, no. Oh, I can. No, I can. just get off. Wait, wait, wait. Where am I going? This way, go. One night I was uh, driving back from the rig. It was a late night job. Was, I think it was like one in the morning already. And I, my boss was sitting next to me. It's a country road. Absolutely no houses, no nothing, no lights, nothing through the bush. What's worse is as we get closer to town, we realized it was really touch and go we were gonna make it because we had very, very little gas. My boss was basically saying, don't stop for anything because if you stop, you, <laughs> you may not be able to start up the car again. So anyway, this all of a sudden, this big old mother pig marches across the road. <laughs> My boss said, don't stop. And I'm thinking, how the hell am I not gonna stop? That pig's almost as big as the car. Anyway, the pig passes, and I was just about ready to breathe a sigh of relief. And then I see behind the mother pig, like 20 little pigs running after the mom. And my pussy don't stop. I just want to get home. And I, I'm drawn right through the cluster of little pigs. I'm thinking, oh my God. It is sad. Oh, God. All right, snappers. Here we go. Say, here I am. I'm on the road again. There I am. Up on stage. Here I go. 
I'm playing a star again. Will I go turn the page? Ha ha ha! See, the true musicians know their home is on the road. And not many know it as well as the band Red Wanting Blue. They toured all over the United States for the past 10 years. And Scott Terry, their lead singer, he told Snap this story from their first national tour. We're driving a 2002 white Dodge Ram 3500 van with a trailer on the back of it. We were driving through Jackson Hole on our way to Billings, Montana, because we had to play at the university the next day. And we were right on our way out of town, and the transmission on the vehicle seized. So we made a call, and we were all starting to panic. The tow truck driver, who I believe his name was Mark, said... I'll do it for free. You guys are obviously in some trouble here. You know, where are you guys going to go? We didn't know what to do. And he said, well, do you guys want to go to a party? Because that's where I was just at. And we said, well, yeah, I guess so. This guy named Norm, he was the guy hosting the party, was the owner of this taxi company. Norm was quickly a fan of the band and said, I would love to see you guys play live. And I hate the thought of you not being able to make your show. And he said, well, how far is Billings? One guy said three hours. One guy said four hours. Norm then tells us, I think that this is a job for the Tiki Taxi. The Tiki Taxi is this vehicle that he modified. It did have these two surfboards on the roof. It had the astroturf grass inside with a volcano that emitted steam and smoke and had an aquarium bar. I guess you can have a moving liquor license in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It definitely looked like somebody had had too much fun at Home Depot. And off we went. We quickly realized, like driving, that Billings, Montana was over nine hours away from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We played our show. We may just be able to go with a bang. He enjoyed it. It was great. And then after the show, we're now on the Montana freeway driving back. And Norm said, last time took too long to get here. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to take a shortcut. and We're going to cut through the park. And we didn't know what that meant. Okay, well, whatever you think is best. Like a bad sign from above, the surfboards on the roof of the Tiki Taxi flew off into and broke into bits along the Montana freeway. We picked up these the fragments and kept going, and we entered the town of Red Lodge, Montana, which is at the northern gate of Yellowstone. At that moment, we realized that when he said we're going to cut through the park, that he meant Yellowstone Park. And I was like, but I think it's pretty big. So we entered the northern gate and we're going up the first hill of the Beartooth Pass, which is like a diabolical roadway, cuts through Yellowstone, and it reaches over like 13,000 feet. We were slowly going up the hill. I knew we were carrying a lot of weight from the equipment and everybody else. But he, he had this kind of nervous smile on his face. He said to me, do you think we should be going faster than this? And I, I looked at him and I said, I don't know. I mean, how, how hard are you pushing the gas? And he said, I'm flooring it. And we were going about 15 miles an hour. But I was like, oh, man, wait, 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 wait. Pull over. And we pulled over and we realized that he had popped the transmission seals on the Tiki Taxi. So now it's been like 48 hours and we have destroyed two transmissions. We were all freaking out. We started to try to push the vehicle up the hill. And these other people are driving by. And they're stopping and they're waving at us saying, you guys are absolutely crazy. There's 200 miles of mountains. You need to turn around and go back to town. It was very quiet because we were all worried about how Norm was feeling about the fact that this trip was probably a really bad idea for him. And he stopped, asked me for his CD book, and he quietly sifted through and there was not a sound in the vehicle. And he pulled out Cake and played the song The Distance. He said, we're going to be okay, guys. And he was like, hit it in neutral. Then we just wound up flying down this mountain in neutral, back down into town. Because he's going the distance. He's going for speed. So we're entering the town limits. And we got lucky and saw that there was a garage 
right there. So we stopped. Mechanic there said, you know, I'll take a look at it. And meanwhile, Norm had made a call. Mark, the AAA guy, said, this is terrible. I can't believe this. Don't worry. You guys hang tight. I got a vehicle that I can get the Tiki Taxi and all you guys. So we wound up going to one of the restaurants in town and said, hey, you don't happen to know if there's a place where bands play in town. We might be able to play and make some money or do something. Then the woman said, oh, well, we've got live music at the Snow Creek Saloon. We walked over, doors to the place were wide open, and there were dogs walking in and out. We had asked if we could play. The whole bar was super excited about the fact that there was a bass player, and more importantly, there was a drummer, because I guess they never have drummers in town. And as we watched these musicians coming in to play the open mic, there's a woman walking in with like a broomstick, you know, like with a wash tub bass. There was a guy, John, who looked like Sam Elliott from The Big Lebowski. He played guitar, and we were like, holy cow, we are totally out of our element here. They offered us free food and free beer. The guys in the band wound up being the backup band for everybody else that night that wanted to play and jam. So tell me where you wanna go. Tell me where you wanna go. Norm got a call from Mark and he's like, oh my God, it's bad news. Mark, racing to get here through the park, ran into an elk. And I didn't even know what an elk was. I said, I was like, what is an elk? And he's like, it's like a really, really big deer. And I was like, oh, man, he killed a big deer in the park? Is that, like, illegal? And he's like, he didn't kill it. He hit it and got it pissed off. And the thing kicked in the radiator of the vehicle. And now the radiator is smoking and had to, like, fill it up and pour water in the radiator so it didn't explode. He's like, I'm sorry, you guys. Now I got my own problems. We started to panic a little bit. And then people started to kind of tell the story to other people around. And we ran into John the guy that we played with. And he had said, you guys haven't figured out a way to get out of town yet? And he said, well, where you gotta go? To Jackson Hole. And he said, I haven't been to Jackson Hole in like 10 years. Well, I guess I'll take you. He said, let me just go get a couple things. So he bought a case of Heineken and some cigarettes. And I had said, hey, John, you know, isn't it against the law to uh, drink and drive? He smirked and he's like, oh, there ain't no laws in Montana. I look back on that story now with, you know, a lot of fondness. It was like a real lesson in the humanity. You don't find that kind of kindness. You know, you just don't see that every day. A family pulls together in moments like that, and the band is a lot like a family. That's one of the reasons that I love being in a band, because people want to see you back on the road. Most of the music used in that last story was by Red Wanting Blue. Their latest album, These Magnificent Miles, is all about traveling, and we're going to have a link on snapjudgment.org. Again, thanks to Stephanie Fu for producing that piece. Now, don't go anywhere. We're just pulling over to the rest stop for just a moment. Got to hit the vending machine, see what kind of coffee they got. Snap Judgment, the road trip episode. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. This here is the road trip episode. And you know how they say sometimes it's not so much where you wind up, but how you get there? (laughs) That saying was not meant to apply to our next guest, Mark Allen. See, lots of folks, they like to get loose behind the wheel, 
unbutton a tie, maybe take off their shoes or whatever, but this brother takes it to a whole nother level. And this story comes to us from a live performance. We love the live performances. A live performance from the amazing Risk, True Tales, Boldly Told podcast, Mark Allen. I'd like to take you back to 1987. I was living in Dallas, Texas, and I had a very good friend named Buck. And one thing that Buck and I loved to do was go on road trips to Austin. We kept promising each other that one day we were gonna drive to Austin naked. (laughs) And we talked about it so much to each other and our friends, we kind of felt like we had to do it. So let me just tell you, naked driving should never be planned. But since we were young and naive and knew nothing about spontaneity, one sunny August day, Buck held the wheel of my 1980 silver Toyota Corona hatchback as I simultaneously drove and carefully pulled every thread of clothing I had on off and then put my hands back on the wheel and Buck got undressed and there we were, drive without having stopped, barreling up Highway 35, nude, and you know, we were like, yay! And uh, of course it didn't feel hilarious or surreal. It felt incredibly awkward, incredibly (laughs) pathetic. Uh, Neither of us could say a word to each other. And so after a long silence, we were like, let's get in the right-hand lane. And then as cars slowly pass us in the left-hand lane, we'll honk at them and wave so they can see us. So after that livened up the mood a bit, we were like, you know, let's put our clothes back on now. And, you know, uh, we did it in reverse order and he held the wheel and I got dressed and we were like, we did it! We're going down the road, and just as I'm stomping my last shoe onto my left foot on the floorboard, last piece of thing I had to put on, all of a sudden we hear, woo! And I look in the rearview mirror, and there's a highway patrolman. And we're just like, oh my God, oh my God, what did you pull over, pull over? What are we going to say? What are we? You know, you whisper to each other when that happens? I don't know. So anyway, we came up with a plan. Two points. Number one, when the highway patrolman brings up new driving, act confused. And number two, when new driving is established... The fact is, we were driving with our shirts off only, and anyone who saw anything else is just imagining things. So the highway patrolman came and he took our driver's licenses, and then he had us get out of the car, and sure enough, he looks at me and he says, do you mind if I search your car? And I just went, um... And then he goes, is there anything in the car you'd like to tell me about now? And he's putting his gloves on. Anything incriminating or illegal you'd like to get out of the way? And I think about it for a minute, and then I look him in the eye and I say, no. There isn't. And that was the truth. So they open my door, my hatchback, and they're searching the car, and I'm standing back there with Buck, and I'm thinking, okay, they're gonna ring up the new driving, just make sure you deny it. And and as I'm thinking this, the highway patrolman starts walking really quickly over to me, and he grabs my wrist, he puts it behind my back, and clank, clank, and he handcuffs me, and he throws me under the hood of his car, and he starts shaking this clear plastic baggie in my face, and it's filled with grass, and this giant thing of rolling papers, and he goes, I found this in your glove compartment! And I'm thinking in my head, I'm going, oh, no, oh, no, 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 oh, uh, I totally swear to God, I forgot that that bag of grass had indeed been in my glove compartment, or I would have told him. And I thought, okay, we're going to lie about the new driving, but I better be 100% honest about that bag of grass. And he looks at me and says, what are the contents of this bag? And I look up at him, and with a shaky voice, I tell him the truth, and I say, it's grass that I took off the top of James Dean's gravesite in Fairmont, Indiana. And that's what was actually in that bag. I was a huge James Dean fan at the time. I'd been in Indiana, I went through Fairmont, I visited his gravesite, it was early in the morning, nobody was around. I reached down and I took a bunch of the grass off the top because I thought it would have his DNA in it or something. And then the highway patrolman was like, why are there rolling papers with it? And I was like, oh God, how am I gonna explain this? And I say, because one night me and a bunch of my James Dean fan friends rolled it up and smoked some of it. (laughs) And this is the truth. Actually, the truth is it had just been me alone, but uh, I knew the highway patrolman and the cops knew we had been naked driving. I knew one of the uh, big pickup trucks we passed had pulled over and called from a payphone and reported us. And so, you know, I think they were very smart. They thought, well, let's pull them over and search the car and we'll probably find something worse. But instead they found something weird. So they put me in the back of the highway patrolman's car with my handcuffs still on. They handcuff button. They put him back in one of the cop cars. Oh, and I'm watching them search my car, and the car's wiggling. I'm thinking, God, is, is there anything else in the car that I forgot about? All of a sudden, one of the cops has his hand between the, my two front seats, deep in the console, and he's trying to pull something out. As I'm seeing him do that, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. And right as I'm thinking that, he yanks out this 
filthy, crumpled up brown paper bag. And in my head, I'm going, no, no, oh my God, I, I can't believe it. That bag is even worse than the James Dean Gravegrass, and I have no idea how I'm gonna explain what's in that bag. You know, the Smiths, the band in the 80s. I was a huge fan, and I'd gone to see the Queen is Dead tour when it came to the Bronco Bowl in Dallas. At one point in the show, Morrissey, like, took off his sweat-soaked t-shirt and tossed it into the crowd, and everyone dove on it and tore it apart like wild animals. And I got a huge chunk of it, like the collar and the front of it. And later that week at school, people started offering me huge amounts of money for this thing. They're like, I'll give you $100 for that, because you could just smell Morrissey on his sweat. And so I started selling little chunks of it, like $30 and $20. And I was like, I could make a lot of money. And one day, I was in a head shop in Denton, Texas, and I saw that they sold these tiny, itty-bitty little Ziploc bags. I said, I know what I'll do. I'll take Morrissey's shirt and I'll cut it into tiny little white squares. And I'll put each one of these white squares into one of these Ziploc bags. And I'll sell them for 20 bucks a pop and I'll make like five grand, you know. It's art. Of course, when I did that, nobody wanted to buy it anymore. They were just like, what the hell? So... And I put them in this brown paper bag and I shoved it deep in between my two seats in the console, forgot about it, it was buried under a year of Whataburger wrappers and big gulp cups. I was just sitting there thinking, how am I going to explain this to the cops? And as I'm thinking it, I'm watching them, they go back to the cop car and they're up at my car again and they put all their rubber gloves on and they've gotten out their drug testing kits and they've got <laughs> blue vials of liquid, you know, and droppers and they're taking with tweezers and they're Morrissey's shirt out of the thing and they're putting it in the blue <laughs> droppers and they're on the radio back to headquarters or whatever, you know. They eventually calmed down and they opened the doors and conference with me and they were like, explain the contents of this car. So I had to tell them these stories over and over again and they just kept looking at me and the whole time they weren't bringing up the naked driving, which was the whole point. And so we were all like trying to psych each other out. It's what it felt like, you know, what's real, what is truth, you know. And uh, so... Finally, they eventually unhandcuffed me, they unhandcuffed Buck, they put us both in the front seat of my car, which was a good sign, they took Morrissey's shirt, they took the James Dean Graygrass, and I'm waiting, and, and finally he comes up and he goes, okay, Mr. Allen, we are charging you with, and I swear, right as I was about to, in commiseration, open my mouth and say, like an idiot, look, I know this is all about the naked driving, I just want you to know I'm really sorry, I learned my lesson. Instead, he takes his ticket off and he goes, we're charging you for an expired inspection sticker on your license plate, $40 fine. And I just said, oh, okay. And he said, have a nice day, and he went back to his car. So I took the ticket, and I shoved it deep in the center console <laughs> of my car, started it up, we headed back to Austin, and anyone who saw anything else is just imagining things. <laughs> Thanks again to Mark Allen and Kevin Allison of Risk for letting us use that story. Got one story you want to share with us as well? Let us know, snapjudgment.org. Now, Snappers, you knew that we weren't trying to have a road trip episode without a Jeff Greenwald story. And Jeff, one of his many trips, Jeff took a very, very long trip, halfway around the world trip on his journey. Jeff ran into a little trouble when he was looking for something to eat. It was a hot, bright afternoon in August, just a few days before the total eclipse of the sun. I found myself in Tehran with a small group of Americans who were there to see the eclipse. You see, if you're going to go to Iran as an American, the insurance companies insist that you all stay together because you never know what's going to happen to somebody if they go wandering off by themselves on the streets of Tehran. But my friend uh, Sam and I decided that we did not want to be coddled and fed in the hotel. And we figured that what we would do is sneak out on our own and, and try to have some fun out there on the streets. We went to visit the old American embassy, which is now a military intelligence training camp with anti-American slogans all over the front wall, including one of my favorites, which is, The day America praises us, we should mourn. And then we went wandering the streets in search of lunch. We didn't read or speak any Farsi, and it was impossible to tell what was a restaurant and what wasn't. But by kind of tracking where all these men were going down this flight of steps, and we just kind of followed them, and, and indeed it was a, a small cafeteria-like room with about 12 tables. And we walk in there, and it's just a, the glare of fluorescent lights. There's a Coca-Cola clock on the wall above the cash register. On either side of the Coca-Cola clock, there are pictures of two ayatollahs. Now, there are about 
20 or 30 Iranian men in the room, all with big, thick beards. And they were all looking at us uh, continually from the moment we arrived to the moment we sat down. And we averted our gazes and looked down at these menus. And Sam and I just look at each other, and he goes, what's, uh, what's for lunch? <laughs> what's on the menu? And I said, I, I have no idea. Meanwhile, everyone around the room is still looking at us. And I look across, and next table down, there's a guy with a plate of some kind of meatballs and rice. And I pointed it, and I, I say to Sam, that looks good. And the minute my finger is pointing, the guy looks at me with this volcanic glare and starts shouting in Farsi for the waiter. And the waiter comes over and he just starts pounding his newspaper on the table and saying, American, blah, blah, American, American. And I'm just, I'm turned away really quickly. Sam looks at me and he says, this is not exactly Applebee's. Every time I sort of meet the eye of someone who's eating lunch, they just glare at me and they scream at the waiter and they point at us. And it's just clear that we're not welcome. I, I've been in a lot of places in my life, traveling in a lot of different countries. And I started to feel this sense building in the room like we were really in trouble. And I looked at Sam and I said, you know, I think we ought to get out of here. So I just pull out like a wad of bills and I, I throw them on the table and we, we sort of gulp down our Cokes and we try to stand up. But there's a huge hand pushing down on my shoulder and I crane my neck up and I look at the guy who's attached to the hand and he gives me this look and he shakes his, his head. It's just the universal language. You're not going anywhere. The reality of what's happening dawns on us simultaneously. We're being kidnapped in, in Iran. We're about to be kidnapped. For me, my eyes just lit up. You know, I imagined there'd basically be a year in captivity with the inevitable, you know, episodes of despair and then my inevitable release and hopefully a seven-figure book contract and the movie rights. So uh, <laughs> I'm sitting there and just kind of all of these uh, sugar plums are dancing through my head and I had just barely started to spend my advance when the door to the kitchen burst open and this huge man came charging towards me with his hands completely full, but the guy wasn't carrying any weapons. He was carrying this, this filigreed tray. The, the tray was just laden with uh, kebab and koresh, with dolme and mashed, with kuku and kofte, a pile of lavash bread and a huge terrine of rice. What had happened was that every single person in the restaurant had been looking at us and telling the waiter to send us his favorite dish. The waiter and the cook stood there above us, watching us eat. They wouldn't let us leave until we were completely and absolutely bloated. I stood up to leave, and I just thumbed through my phrase book, and I, I finally lit on the only phrase that seemed to make any sense in the circumstances, which was, Chubkari Nakon, your generosity puts me to shame. Thanks again, Jeff Greenwald, author of several books, including the recently published Snake Lake. We'll have a link to the world that is Jeff Greenwald right on our site, snapjudgment.org. You can also go there. We'll have podcasts, videos, uh, the Twitter feed, Facebook. Go ahead and find out what goes into the sausage-making fest that is storytelling. You're going to love it. This here, this right here is Snap Judgment, the road trip episode. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. Now, we're doing a road trip episode. 
And of course, I wanted to get up and go on the road myself, but the man steady talking about, I gotta stay here and do stuff I don't wanna do. So I went for the next best thing and sent out our own Rita Daniels. Rita went down south in search of the real Mardi Gras, and she found it. One, two, one, two, three, So when I think of Mardi Gras, I think of a bunch of parades in the French Quarter and raucous college-age girls flashing themselves in exchange for sparkly beats. And so when I find myself in the state of Louisiana working on some stories for The Snap during Mardi Gras season, my expectations are, you know, moderate. But then my friends, some native Louisianans, say, no girl, we're going to the real Mardi Gras out in the country. I have zero idea what they're talking about. But on Fat Monday, the day before Mardi Gras, I show up to their house to make some special costume, whatever that means. And people have caravaned in from all over the planet to celebrate this carnival. Ela falou assim, gosto, mas eu assisto. Eu tô cá de novo. Everybody's singing makes it better. It makes it more delicious. Everybody's singing makes it more delicious. So what are we doing right now? We are making our masks for the Mardi Gras in the country. It's way too big. I can fold it over on this side. They are so going to have you in the mud. Which is different than the Mardi Gras in the city. It is very different from the Mardi Gras in the city. In that Mardi Gras in the country has masks made of window screens. Hobo's Mardi Gras. It's what poor people did. This is poor people's Mardi Gras. Not uptown. This is not uptown. This is not your shishi St. Charles Avenue bull****. No beads and no glitter. Only fringe out of old clothes and window screens. Road trip! Before dawn, we caravan out of New Orleans, across the swamps of the bayou, and out to the open prairies of southwestern Louisiana. On the drive out, my friends try to give me a heads up and explain that what we're headed to is called the Mardi Gras Run. We're dressed like peasants in torn up pieces of cloth, and we're going to be acting out a medieval French ritual. Today is our day to beg for potatoes and fat from the rich. But still, nothing could quite prepare me for what I'm about to step into. We're here. I jump out of the car and stop dead in my tracks, stunned. There are 300 people lining this dirt road. Everyone's face is covered with those window screen masks. And even though it's 7 a.m., the whiskey is freely flowing. It doesn't look like water to me. Whiskey. Same thing. What do you think, Rita? Are you happy? These guys look good, huh? Now I've seen some crazy things in my life, but I am speechless. I line up with everybody else, and before you know it, there's these men on horses, dressed like Napoleon, that come through with whips going, huzzah, let's go, let's go. And we start marching for about a quarter mile, and then we stop at the first farm we come upon. This is the chicken run. The first chicken throw. The Capitan, the man on the horse, makes everyone get down on their knees and beg for several minutes. And then once the farmer tosses the live chicken up into the air, I nearly get trampled as the crowd goes chasing after it. And when it's caught, people bust out these instruments and the music starts and everyone breaks out into dance. And before you know it, I'm two-stepping my little heart out with this old guy. Which run is this? This is uh, the original chicken run and everything. This is way more important to us because it's got music everywhere along the way. Everybody celebrates the original Mardi Gras and all. All right. Thank you so much. And the next thing you know, the Capitan comes up, cracks his whip, and herds all of us revelers further on down the road. I run up next to one of his cohorts, and I roll the tape. You tell me where we are. On est à Fikitaye, petit village, pas loin de Eunice, not far from Eunice, Louisiana. And are you a Capitan? Co-Capitan. Can you tell me what that means? Le Capitan, c'est l'homme sur le cheval. He's the man on the horse, the, the sheriff. 
You keep everyone in line? We keep everyone in line for on the Mardi Gras run to make sure we don't reveal our identity, but also to respect the neighbors who are giving us thanks for our gumbo tonight. La Charité, come on, D. La Charité, charity. Whether it be a potato or some cracklings, pork skin. Le grato. Have a good time. Thank you. At this point, I've learned that a big part of this is that we're supposed to keep our identities a complete secret. Well, it's part of the fun. That's why we're covered head to toe in costumes. So from farmhouse to farmhouse, chicken run to chicken run, and dance to dance, I am holding strong. It's muddy. It's dirty. We're just having a good old time here. But then I go trudging out into these peeing fields. I get stuck in this serious mud, like three feet deep. Pretty muddy, yeah. We're gonna get whipped for this for sure. My name is Otis Ike. And without thinking, I cave. Otis Ike, I'm Rita Daniel. Reveal my identity and just completely give it away. That's just like you, you always just giving it away. The day is getting wilder and more insane, and at this point, I look over yonder, and the crowd has gathered in the middle of this empty field, and they are going crazy. Oh! Okay, so this is opposite the peeing field. Look at that! Look at that! Is that chicken up there? There is a chicken up there! People are trying to get the chicken on top of the pole. They grease that pole. There's a 30-foot-high greased pole, and on top of the pole is a cage, and inside the cage is the final chicken. And people are climbing up and over each other, desperate to be the one that shimmies up to the very top and open up that door. It takes 20 minutes. But when that cage door gets flung open, the chicken flies out over that crowd and then takes off running. And we all go chasing. Chicken was just in that cage on the top of the grease pole. Yeah, he got so frightened, I'm sure. I'm from France. De la France. I really like this, uh, this place. So why do you come out here to this run? I really like the spirit. It feels like big family. It's from a tradition. They prefer actually much more like the cultural uh, Mardi Gras because uh, we are in a dress in costume from the Middle Age from France. The tradition is coming from there. This is the old way to do it, huh? Yeah, the old way. Yeah. It's really fun. Yeah. And then what happens to the chicken now? It'll be cooked for the gumbo tonight. Especially, oh, I feel so sad for him though. <laughs> we'll all be exhausted though after this whole day drinking and running. It's crazy. Is that the chicken? Yeah. Yeah. No way! Good for you, David! So winning the chicken is like a big deal, right? It's a, the biggest deal. That's the honor. The hero. That's the honor of it. He wants man. to kiss the chicken. Yeah, that's what this festival is all about. It's all about the chicken. Pull it up to your face. Hey, We'll see you guys down the road. So what's your role here? Capitan. What do you do? It's, uh, it's all part of the role. Everyone's role-playing. What are we role-playing? Ah, uh, you know, you have your antagonist and you have enforcers. You know, you, the antagonist is supposed to challenge the enforcers, and it's our job to, to stand our ground. It allows the Mardi Gras to, uh, to rebel. If you, you can't rebel if you don't have anything to rebel against. Okay. It's my job to, to make sure that y'all are having fun like this guy with the chicken mask. And if I'm not having enough fun... Oh, we'll find somebody to throw you in the mud. We throw each other in the mud because... It's, it's, it's really getting primal, getting back to your childhood. When it was okay to throw each other in the mud. When it was okay to, to wrestle around, you know? It's for one day just letting all your responsibilities and your cares and letting it all go and being young again and not having to have too many consequences for it. And did you grow up around this kind of Mardi Gras? No, I didn't. I married into it. Yeah? Yeah. It's pretty special. Oh, yeah, it's very special. Yeah. Okay, I gotta, I gotta okay, get back you. to work. Thank you, Capitan. What is this? This is Dennis McGee's grave. Who's Dennis McGee? Dennis McGee's old school cage man, godfather cage of music. We're paying respects. Come on. You know, is it this one? This one? Yeah. As though things couldn't get any more surreal, in the middle of all this drunken mayhem, we're sitting in a graveyard, and the festive Mardi Gras music that's been played all day long changes to this beautiful, melancholic ballad, and everyone is silent. 
and then comes the priest. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Together today in this feast of festivals, uh, we celebrate in excess, in contrast to tomorrow where we fast. And it's a, a way of remembering that in every human person there is a little bit of a demon in us and a little bit of an angel. And that's what makes us human. And so we celebrate today our culture. We celebrate all those people who have gone before us, especially the McGee's, Dennis and Gladys. And for them and for their souls and all of our ancestors, we pray. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Les Bontemps Roulets. Les Bontemps Roulets. Let the good times roll, baby. Come on, y'all. Let's go dance and eat some gumbo. You ready? So we're about to do dance and eat gumbo? Yeah. Dance and make some mud and eat some gumbo. That's the payoff for running around all day chasing chickens. You had a good time? I had a good time. And as people start to head off for the last leg of the run, a few musicians linger at the gravesite and play tributes of their own to Mr. McGee. Do you guys know who Dennis McGee is? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, amazing fiddle player. His fiddle tunes were 100 years old, so he's the one who brought the old, old music back alive for the young people. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) We warm our bellies with the day's gumbo, so satisfying, and I dance and dance and dance until my legs refuse to take one more step. My friends literally have to force me to get back into the car for the long drive home, and all I can say is, thank God for car radios, because when that Cajun music comes on, I close my eyes, and I'm right back there, and I know that I will hold on to this day forever. Rita would like to send much love and thanks to the Savoie family clan and the good people of Fikitaye, Louisiana. To hear more of the music and see pictures from Rita's amazing and crazy day, visit our website, snapjudgment.org. Okay, so if you have listened to The Snap at all, you know that our own Anna Sussman is an intrepid traveler. We actually roped her into the SNAP project when she was living in Liberia. She's been all through Asia. She knows South America, knows all kinds of stuff, which makes this next story such a surprising one. Anna Sussman. My husband recently got a very good deal on some flights. Yeah, he said, I called the airlines and asked for their cheapest deal from Oakland to La Paz, Bolivia. Great, I said, it's so much cheaper than anything we found online. We were going to Bolivia to visit some friends and to do some reporting on cocoa farmers in the countryside. It was July. John had saved up basically a year's worth of vacation days at his newspaper. We packed suitcases full of fleece jackets, hiking boots, and woolly hats. July in Bolivia can be pretty chilly. Tickets arrived in the mail, paper tickets, and we carefully put them on the front of the fridge, reading over them when we'd go for juice in the morning. Oakland to La Paz. We were so excited, we even convinced another journalist friend to fly down from Miami and meet us there. We flew through Mexico City, and at the Mexico City airport, John took out the video camera and filmed me reading the Bolivia Lonely Planet. Then he pans the camera up to the screen above the ticket counter at the gate. In red digital letters, it says, La Paz. Where we going, hon? He says from behind the camera. I point to the book cover. Bolivia. The flight was shorter than we expected. We step off the plane in La Paz around midnight, and it's actually pretty warm. And oddly, someone on our plane has brought a surfboard. We grab our bags from the belt walk through an empty terminal, and find a lone taxi driver smoking a cigarette outside. Hello, Rosario Hotel, please. This is where we've arranged to meet our friend. The cabbie stares at us blankly. There is no Rosario Hotel, he says. John and I look at each other and roll our eyes. Listen, we don't want to go to your friend's hotel or any other hotel. Just take us to the Rosario Hotel. But he refuses. So we get out of the cab and decide to wait for our friend's flight from Miami. He's supposed to get in in about an hour. So we ask an airport attendant, where's the international arrivals hall? There is no international arrivals hall, he says. John and I don't speak Spanish, 
We really don't know what's going on and we're getting frustrated. It's late at night and no one is around. Just kind of a dirty, small, empty, tiled airport. Us and our luggage. Finally, we find a security guard and ask about the hotel. He's never heard of the Rosario Hotel. Are we in La Paz, I ask? Yes, he says. La Paz. La Paz, Mexico. Mexico. We had spent almost $2,000 to fly from Oakland to Baja, Mexico in July. So we checked into a local hotel and proceeded to spend the next 12 hours on the phone with the airline, whose automated teller insists that I'm trying to book a flight to Bombay, India. You want to travel to Bombay, India. Is this correct? We go back to the airport. We approach the ticket counter. Final destination? Oakland. Auckland, New Zealand? No. Oakland, California. Now, that was our own Anna Sussman. And Anna, we don't want you getting lost around the office, taking the wrong elevator to the wrong floor. If you need any help whatsoever, let me know. You know, we'll press the button for you. Thanks a lot. Maybe I can help you. Now, you know, after you crash your car in Bakersfield after your road trip, it's nice to take that smooth flight back on home, isn't it? Get on a plane for a while. And today I'll be thrilled to serve as your captain. Snap judgment today is piloted by myself, but never alone. But, but please bang your trade tables together for our first officer, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. The person keeping both cabins supplied with cocktails is Rita Daniels. Stephanie Fu kept the music bumping on today's flight, and Anna Sussman will have your gate assignments after touchdown. Please follow Mitchie Mock in case of a water landing, and um, please do not follow Will Urbina in case of a water landing. The person next to you screaming and hollering the entire flight? Well, it must be the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and many thanks to the CPB for getting us off the ground. And what's this like? If you take one of those little airplane vials that was the public, and another that was the media, and you stirred them together in a cocktail glass, you'd get PRX. The Public Radio Exchange, putting the public in public media, prx.org. And even though this is not the news, in fact, somebody could run up in your mama's house, take her down to the airport, put her on an airplane, throw some cobras on the airplane, and when you ask where your mama was, they would tell you, your mama's with some snakes on a plane. All that could happen, friends. All that, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR. <laughs>